ask you a question. And this question is kind of a loaded question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? You see, we say a follower, but then a follower assumes that you have what? So who's discipling you if you're a disciple? And if we're called to be discipling people, who are you discipling? And we get really academic with this word really quick. Because if we were actually to apply the word, it has some assumptions that are already there. If I'm called to be a disciple, that means I'm following somebody. If I'm called to disciple somebody, that means somebody's following me. And what does Matthew 28 actually command? As you're going, do what? Make disciples. So who's your disciple this morning? Who is the person that you are personally working with on a regular basis to bring them closer to Jesus Christ? Who's the person that you're intentionally working with, spending time with, mentoring in the faith, discipling them to be more like you? Remember Paul's admonition to the believers was what? Follow me as I follow Christ. This is the essence of discipleship. This is really the calling of God for everybody who bears the name of Jesus Christ. And before the end of the message, I think I'm going to thoroughly convince you that the Bible is not calling you to share your faith. The Bible is calling you to make disciples. And not just make disciples where you are, but make disciples wherever you go. That means when you go to work, what should, you, what should be on your mind? When you go to the supermarket, what should be on your mind? When you come to church, what should be on your mind? What I can get. No. What can I give? Who can I pour my life into today? Who can I... So let's, that's the mission this morning. The mission is to define what a disciple is and what God says about disciples and then ask the questions if we're discipling. And really a simple message... But our purpose this morning right now is to define what a disciple is. And this is what a disciple is. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. Not that complicated, right? So as you're following Jesus, you're intentionally helping somebody else what? Follow Jesus. Paul's definition was follow me as I follow Christ. So this is the essence of what discipleship is really is. But the first step for each of us to lovingly follow, is for each of us to lovingly follow Jesus, then intentionally help others to do the same. When Jesus called some fishermen in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he also gave them purpose, didn't he? Look what the verse says. And he said to them, follow me and what? I'll make you fishers of men. What was the mission? Following or fishing for men? The calling was follow me. The mission is make fishers of men. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. But how are you fishing for men? This is what we're going to see throughout the Gospels as we, as we power through here. As we are growing in our faith, we are called by God 
to bring others along with us. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And what you've heard among me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to who? Faithful people, faithful men, who will also be able to do what? Teach others also. So you have a disciple who is being taught by somebody, and he's also discipling, which means he's teaching somebody. So you really should be the middle cog. There should be somebody over you helping you be a better disciple, and there should be somebody under you that you're discipling. This is the ethos of Christianity. This is the concept of what God has called us to do. And here's the thing. I know a couple of you are already in opposition and doubting this. Now let's go to Matthew 16. Or let's go to Matthew 28, verse 16. Because it's going to call us out here. And this is why reading verses in context matters. It's great to say, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That sounds great, right? But let's remember what's going on in the passage here because devoted disciples will disciple other people and in turn are being discipled by somebody else. And by the way, if you were to read all four Gospels, before I get to this verse, if we were to read all four Gospels today and we were to put a letter D for discipleship, in the margin of your Bible, for every time the gospel talked about discipleship or the process of making a disciple, do you know how many D's would be in just your New Testament alone? Or just in the, just in the four gospels alone? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many times do you think the letter D would appear in your Bible in the, fourth, the first four books of the, of the New Testament? 104 times. 104 times in the Gospels, you are called to be discipling, make a disciple, or be a disciple. 104 times just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So to say that this is something that, that Jesus never really talked about, or this is like an afterthought of God, if God says something once, it's important, right? If he said it twice, he kind of added some emphasis when he did that, didn't he? How, how did Jesus add emphasis to something that he was really trying to get across? Truly, truly, I say unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, right? He would emphasize it. What about something he said 104 times? <laughs> Can you imagine? Truly, 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 104 times. He emphasizes this truth in the first four books of the New Testament. We're not even playing with Acts. We're not even playing with Romans. We're not even touching Ephesians. We're not touching Timothy or Titus or any of the other prison epistles that clearly make discipleship overtures, right? This is just the Gospels. So in our text today is Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. But before we go there, let's set the context, right? After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then he appeared to the other Mary. Then later he shows up to Peter, and then he shows up to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And do you remember what their commentary of walking with Jesus was? Did not our heart burn within us as we walked in the way? Did not the, there was a fire inside of us understanding the truths that he was sharing and understanding and be illuminated to the fact that he was, by the way, what was Jesus doing on that road to Emmaus? He's talking to two believers or unbelievers? 
Believers. So as Jesus is walking with the guys on the road to Emmaus, what function of spirituality is he doing for them? He's discipling them. He is intentionally injecting truth into their life for them to be different so that they are encouraged to go and tell who? Everybody else what just happened. This is the core essence of discipleship. So coming off the heels of intentional discipleship in the context we're looking at, the same evening, Jesus tells his disciples to meet me somewhere. And as he's walking to the road, the road of Emmaus, where is Jesus headed? Well, let's read. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went where? Who told them to go to Galilee? Jesus did. So Jesus was making his way to Galilee as he's walking with the two guys on the road of Emmaus. And he's on his way to Galilee, which, by the way, is 90 miles from where the disciples were. By the way, coming up in our missions conference on that Sunday night of the missions conference, we're going to go to Morris that night. I wonder how many of us would be willing to drive our chariots that far. His disciples walked 90 miles. His disciples are walking 90 miles to meet Jesus in Galilee. And as they're walking, verse 16 of our text comes into play. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee 90 miles away to the mountain which, who directed them to? Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 16. Verse 17. And when they saw him, what did they do? But not all. Wait, who was walking on the road to get there? Eleven disciples. Some believed and some what? I bet it wasn't Thomas this time. Thomas, Thomas got it figured out by this point. So we can really rule him out. There's only ten left now, right? Thomas took his medicine. He's like, no, I'm good. I got this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of the disciples, some of the eleven doubted what? What did they doubt? They doubted that Jesus would be present in their life. They doubted that Jesus would actually be there. They doubted that Jesus had the power to be there because where was he just not that long ago? He was in their presence. We learn three key truths from these verses. Number one, obedience is always an expectation of God. If Jesus tells you to go to Galilee, what do you do? Whether you doubt him or not, what do you do? You follow God. You follow his word. Well, it doesn't make sense. Well, great, follow it then, because now you've got to walk by faith, not by sight, right? Which is better, walking by faith or walking by sight? Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them who what? Diligently seek him. We're called to seek Christ. We're called to go where he tells us to go. We trust him at his word and we follow him. Even though the resurrection happened in Jerusalem, Jesus directs his disciples to meet him on the mountain of Galilee, 90 miles on foot to get there. I'm not sure I'd make it. I'd have to pull. It would be a several day journey for me. Listen to Matthew 26, 32. But after I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to where? So what did Jesus already tell them? 
You're going to go to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. So Matthew 28, he tells them what? Go where? Go to Galilee. And some believed and some doubted. Some didn't think he was going to be there. Some didn't think it was going to happen. This is a challenging, a difficult trip, but the disciples don't hesitate. And in a similar way, we must also strive to immediate obedience, no matter how hard and no matter how dumb or insane it might sound. Don't miss this. If the disciples wanted to see Jesus again, they had to go where? They had to go to Galilee. Because the disciples obeyed Jesus, they put themselves in a position where they could not just hear him, but they would hear him make a monumental statement. Listen, we're never going to know the person of Jesus if we won't know what his plans are. We'll never get to know Jesus if we're not willing to be obedient and walk in his way and walk in his truths. Obedience is the key to fulfilling God's plan for your life. You say, well, I want to know what God's plan is. Open your Bible, and when it says do something, do it. For this is the will of God concerning you. When the Bible says that, should we pray about whether or not we know what the will of God is? For this is the perfect and acceptable will of God. Well, maybe I should pray about doing that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your reasonable purpose. And what's the next verse say? It is logical for you to follow Jesus. You know why? Because it's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? Lay your life down. Give it up. What do living dead things do? They're zombies. We die to ourselves and we become alive under Christ. To be a living dead thing means I sacrifice my will, my way, my desires for his will, his way, and his desires. I die to self and become alive to Christ because it's the will of God for me to do this. And if you haven't done that yet, your life is miserable. I guarantee you. I guarantee your life is miserable. But you know why? The Bible tells us why. No man can serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other one, or you're going to use the one to your benefit, and you're going to despitefully use the other one to your benefit. No man can serve two masters. God and mammon can't work together. You're exclusively one or the other. By the way, this is why purgatory doesn't work. You're either in the family of God or you're under the ruler of Satan. You're under the God of this world or you're the God of creation. Now, I don't know in those two options. I want to be, the God of, I want to be under the God of creation, right? What was part of the creation? The world. So greater is he that's in us than he that's in the... I mean, just simple logic sometimes helps us with our theology. Not only is obedience important, but also the right response is reverence. When they saw Jesus, what was the first thing they did? They fell down and worshiped. When we sang that Revelation song, holy, 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 Lord God, well, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to ask Jesus, you know what? You're not going to ask Jesus anything when you walk into his presence. You know what you're going to do? You're going to trip on your own toe. 
and you're going to fall and you're going to land about your chin and your arms are going to be out in front of you and that's how you're going to stay probably for maybe a couple millennia. I don't know. Because the day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day you're going to lose track of all time. And when you fall flat on your face and you start to worship, that's all you're going to care about. That's all you're going to care about. I barely just there, actually. The disciples, when they see Jesus, they hit the dirt and they worship. They fall down at his feet. The idea behind the word here for worship is that they prostrated themselves in praise, much like they did in Matthew 14, after watching Jesus walk on the water. And they say, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. In other words, there's no doubt. Now remember, as they're walking to the mountain, what are some doing? Some are doubting. When they see Jesus, what happens? Doubt's gone. Remember how they see Jesus, though? They had to walk by faith and obedience. They had to do the 90-mile journey. They fall down at his feet. They begin to worship him, which leads to number three. Your doubts don't disqualify you. That's what we learned from the passage. Your doubts don't disqualify you. How many of you enjoy messing up? Nobody? I love messing up. How do you learn if you never mess up? How do you, what, what do you learn from when you mess up? What you did wrong and what you did right. Why are we as humans so afraid of messing up? That's right, we're pride. Who's the father of pride? Think about that. Did Jesus know we were going to mess up? Yeah, that's why we had a law. Does Jesus know we're going to mess up today? That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. Does God expect us to be honest about messing up? That's why we have repentance. So when we walk around acting like we don't mess up and we're holier than thou, we lie and we do not know the truth. That's what 1 John says. Think about it this morning. This is scripture. This isn't... You can get mad at me. I got big shoulders. Let me tell you what the word doubt means. The word doubt's an interesting word as well. It means to be divided in half. (laughs) Anybody doubting this morning? Are you split in half? Remember when Solomon took a baby by the leg and he was going to split the baby in half? He was going to divide it between the two moms? Okay? Same word, Hebrew to Greek here. Same, same usage in the Septuagint and the cross. When you are doubting, you are divided in half. It was used of a person walking up to a fork in the road and they weren't sure which way to go, so what would they do? They'd just stand there. They would stand there at a point of absolute indecision. It's fascinating to me that Jesus does not rebuke them for their doubting, nor does he reject their worship to those who were revering him. While some found great delight in him, others doubted him. Most of them were focused and faithful, but some were filled with fear and were doubting. And you know what? We're a lot like that today too, aren't we? In areas we're good at, we don't doubt. We, we live in confidence. In other areas, we doubt. So when we doubt, does that disqualify us from following God? When we sin, does that disqualify us from, from making disciples or being a disciple? No. 
Why? Because 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? And to thoroughly cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's kind of like the kid who doesn't like taking a bath and you force them to get in a bath and they get out of the bathtub and the water's all dirty. They've been cleansed from their unrighteousness, right? The dirt is in the tub, not on them anymore. The Great Commission. It's interesting. <laughs> Before we unpack this passage all the way, I want, us to, I want to share some results of a Barna study that was done not too distant ago. It was before COVID. Listen to what it says. When asked if churchgoers had heard of the word Great Commission, 51% of churchgoers today in the world, or in the survey from across, across the world, had no idea what the Great Commission is. Never heard the phrase. Never heard the terms. 25% said that they heard of the Great Commission, but they have no idea what it is. They've heard of it, but don't know what it is. Which means, sadly, 76% of those who go to church have no clue what the Great Commission is all about today. Which quickly makes it become the great what? Omission. It's the great omission. Only 17% of those who attend church in this survey actually heard of the Great Commission and actually knew what it, what it was or what it was supposed to do. If we were to take just those numbers today, that means 20% of any group of people in a church, 20% are doing 100% of the evangelism and discipleship. Many believe, but some, some doubted. This is the audience of the Great Commission. There are those that believe that Jesus can, and there are those who weren't sure. They're at a point of indecision. They're at a fork in the road. They're paralyzed by their fear and they're paralyzed by their sight. Because who's standing in front of them? Jesus. And what is he telling them to do? Something. Make, be fishers of men, right? They already know the mission. This is not the first time they're going to hear this. This is not the first, the law of first mention, right? 104 times to this point, the disciples have in the Gospels alone, which, you know, uh, Matthew was one, right? John was one. Um, Mark and Luke, you know, Mark. These are guys who know Jesus. They've heard this a couple times. They are the ones penning the words of discipleship for us in the New Testament here. Now, look with me at Matthew chapter 28. To be clear, the Great Commission today is not just given in Matthew. It's given in Matthew. It's given in Mark. It's given in Luke. It's given in John. It's given in Acts. First five books in the New Testament all give the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. And Jesus came to them saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I see three main points that I'm going to give to you quickly. They're going to propel us to participate in the mission today. 
If you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're called to make disciples, then these three points should propel you, should push you, should force you to engage. Number one, we need to be convinced of the full authority of Jesus Christ. If all authority has been given to God, then what can happen to you that God doesn't ordain? If all authority is in Jesus Christ and you're a follower of him, then what can happen to you that God has not ordained? This is appealing to God's sovereignty, right? So Jesus is saying, not only is God sovereign, but because I'm God, I'm also sovereign. And what has been given to me is all authority. So does that mean Jesus has authority over Satan? Yeah. Does that mean Jesus has authority over Satan's demons? That was the whole essence of the miracles, right? Does that mean Jesus has authority over who gets saved and who doesn't? Does that mean Jesus has authority over who he empowers to give the gospel and who's not going to give the gospel? Some believe, while some doubted. Verse 18, I love that Jesus drew near to the doubters. Did you catch that? What did verse 18 say again? And Jesus came. He came to who? came to them. The 11. Jesus approaches the 11. He walks up to them. Remember, they fall down and worship the second they see him, right? Second they see him, they fall down and worship, and Jesus approaches them. And as he approaches them, he's coming with compassion on them. He's coming with power for them. He's coming with authority for them. He's coming to commission them. And before giving them the assignment, Jesus made sure they knew that he had the authority to fulfill what he was about to command them to do. He told them, I've got the authority already. I don't need to go to my father and ask for permission on this. This this, this is done. This is over. All power is given to me. And guess what I'm about to do? I'm about to give it to you. Do you realize that this morning? Jesus didn't keep his power. He didn't hold his power. He didn't give you a little bit of it. He gave you all of it. And I'm going to convince you that here in a second because there's a word repeated four times in these two verses that we skip over every time. I'll be honest, I didn't even notice this until just recently when I read this. But four times there's a word that's used or a derivative of this word that is used to convince you that not only does he have the ability, but he's already done it. Anybody know what that word is? Chase all. All power. And you're going to follow down in these verses. Listen as we go through these verses here. Let me read them to you again. And Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven... And all authority on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, what? Always, even to the end of the earth. How much power did he delegate to them? What was the mission given to them? 
Partial or all? So Jesus said this, the word all refers to totality and authority. Jesus is speaking with power to his believers and he has given them all authority, all power, and all ability to go into the world and preach the gospel. You know what that tells me when somebody tells me today they can't do it? What does that tell you? They're either doubting or they're not saved. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the what? Power thereof. If all power was given him, and he gives you all power, and you don't have the power to evangelize people, what's wrong? Where's the breakdown? Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in thy name? Depart from me. I don't know who you are. I don't know you. You worker of iniquity. Are we surrendered to Jesus Christ? By the way, this is a great spot to stop and ask the question, are you part of the family of God? Have you played church your whole life? Have you played religion your whole life? By the way, religion is man's way of getting to God. A relationship is God's method of getting to man. Jesus says, I have a relationship with you. I bought you with a price. I paid a price. My body that was broken for you and the blood that was shed for you, by the way, that's why we do communion, right? This do in remembrance of what I did for you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. I'm coming for you. I'm in a relationship with you. This is something that's not 50-50. This is something that's 100-100. Jesus is all in for you. All power is given to you. So what are you going to do with it? I love what John 3.35 says. The Father loved the Son and has given what to him? All things into his hands. This is a good spot to ask if Jesus Christ is first place in your life. Is he preeminent above everything else? Or is he not? Is he something we just add to the many other things in our life? Have we surrendered to him as Lord? Or do we go around doing good things for people and we don't actually have him as Lord of our life? Not only number one, but number two, we need to be committed as followers. We need to be committed to follow the assignment of Jesus, not what we think the assignment is. Do you remember back in grade school when you tried to define the assignment for the teacher? The teacher gave you an order, you're going to do this for homework. Oh, well, I thought you meant... And we tried to define the assignment instead of doing the assignment. Oh, I thought that was due tomorrow, right? We are good at redefining the terms, aren't we? This is why we have contracts and lawyers and all this stuff today, because we want to argue the definition of is. And God says, no, be committed to the assignment I already gave you. And what is the assignment? Well, Let's get back in the verse, because once we're submitted to God's authority, we receive his assignment that's found in Matthew 28, 19, and the beginning of verse 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, no, all I commanded you, that's where he stops, because now the rest of the verse is an assurance. So remember, he's given this commission to make disciples from who? People who are doubting. 
You're here this morning and you've never led somebody to the Lord. You've never discipled somebody. You've never intentionally tried to interact with somebody else with the express purpose of discipling them to become more like what Jesus Christ wants in their life. I know some of you are out there. And I know there's also some that have tried this in the past and failed. Or the other person didn't keep their commitment. Or whatever. Those are not good excuses to quit when God says, all power. All ability. All intentionality. All means... Right? So Jesus is saying something like this. Go and make disciples, and in your going, your doubts will disappear. Go and make disciples, and as you're going, your doubts will disappear. If you start sharing the gospel with people, and you actually sit down with people, and begin to articulate what you believe to them, and you start teaching them what you believe, are you going to become stronger in your faith or weaker? So why don't we try it? Why don't we try it? Some of us have been saved 30 years and we've never discipled a single person. Some of us have been saved three months and you tried to disciple and you crashed and burned. That's okay. You also need to be discipling under somebody that can help you disciple the person you're trying to disciple. And that's exactly what God wants. Disciples making disciples who make disciples. You're both a disciple and you are a teacher. By the way, we're going to take a look at that here in a second because the command is not go. I've heard so many messages preached on, God gives a command to go. No, the go is assumed here. If you're a Christian, you're alive, vertical, and breathing, you are a moving object through creation. Are you not? Right? How many of you have ever traveled somewhere? Okay? As you're going there, is what the Bible implies, you are a person that's breathing and moving, right? So as you're moving about the country, on Southwest or whoever, Make disciples. The command is to make disciples. Make disciples. Well, it may be practice to study the original Hebrew and Greek that I do in my sermon prep. Rarely do I ever give you the words. You know that. I usually define the words for you. But today I'm going to break my own rule. I'm going to give you two words. Because I want you to understand how God defines, and our English translation hurts us here a little bit. Because we hear the word disciple. Okay? And what does disciple mean? Well, there's two aspects of discipleship. There's two words that were used. And, and this morning, I want to give them to you. I'm not going to even put them on the screen because I don't want you to get caught up in what they are. I want you to get caught up in what it means. Didaskalos. Kind of a fun name to say, right? Say it together. Didaskalos, right? Didaskalos. You know what that means? Teacher. Say this one with me. Mathetes. Right, that one's kind of more fun to say. The Daskalos and Mathetes. Mathetes. Go ahead and say it. Mathetes. You know what that means? Pupil. Mathetes. What was the other one? Do they sound alike? Do they look alike? You know what, though? You can be a pupil and be a teacher. You can be a teacher and be a pupil. So in English, guess how we define it? Guess what the actual Greek and Hebrew say? There's a difference. 
There are times in which you should be the teacher and there are times in which you should be the disciple. And you should be a discipling teacher discipling. You should be making disciples as you're being discipled. And as you're being discipled, the natural outflow of that is what? You'll make disciples. This is God's system, not man's system. Man's system is, let's have a class called discipleship, and when you're done, boom, you're a disciple. Woohoo! Where's that in the Bible? You know what I see in the Bible? The Didascalases and Mothetases being interchangeably used in different contexts depending on if you're on the giving end or the receiving end. Which means the same person is both a disciple and a discipler. So I ask you the question I started with. Who are you following and who are you discipling? All power has been given. All power has been given. A disciple, literally a learner, is one who is being mentored by a master. It denotes one who follows another's teaching. Thus, a disciple is a lifelong learner who lives out what he or she is learning from the teacher. Mark 3, verse 14 says this, Jesus appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. What did he do? He taught them to be teachers so they would go out and what? Teach. Why do you come to Sunday school? Why do you come to church? Why do we do... Faith Bible Institute, why do we have discipleship classes? Why do we do all these things? So you can get puffed up with knowledge, be fat, and live high on the hog. No. We're teaching you to become teachers so that you can teach others. Welcome to discipleship. That's the mission. The mission is to make disciples. Discipleship's more than getting to know what the teacher knows. It's becoming more like who the teacher is. This is why our lifestyles and our message have to match for it to be authentic. If it doesn't match, what happens? He's insincere. He's a hypocrite. He says this and he does that. And what do people interpret that as? Disingenuous. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus is calling the people who have a form of godliness and they deny the power thereof. From such, disassociate. Turn away. Don't even give them time. It's not, it, don't even get embroiled with that. So our goal of, dis, of discipling is given to us in Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like what? And what do teachers do? They teach. So if you're going to be like your teacher, then you're going to do what? You're going to be teaching somebody. And if you're teaching, you better have what? Mothetes. You better have pupils. You got to have somebody receiving what you're teaching. Our commission is more than just evangelism. We must make disciples by equipping, edifying, and enfolding new, con enfolding new converts into reproducing churches. This is seen in Acts 14 and verse 21. Check it out. Clear as day. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and where? Antioch. 
What were Antioch, Iconium, and Leicester known for? Sending out disciples to win their area for Jesus Christ. To make disciples of all nations. We get so caught up in sharing the gospel that we miss the real command of make disciples. And this is why churches are dying today. Because if you give them the gospel without discipling them, how do you know they're saved? They're going to return back to what they know, won't they? A person who's sincerely saved, will they turn back to the world? I can think of one guy in the New Testament, actually I can think of two guys in the New Testament, that even though they acted like they were converted, they were actually called of their follow, they were called followers of the, of the devil. Do you remember who they are? One's in 3 John, and the other one's Judas Iscariot. And the one in 3 John, what was his name? Diophrates. And he sought preeminence among the people because he didn't care about the things of God. He wanted to lift himself up rather than lift up Jesus Christ. And you know what God said? I'm going to bring him down. And he did. And Judas, when he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, what happened? God brought him down. Check this out. I, I like what happens here. There is one verb, one main command in the passage, and that is make disciples. You realize verses 19 and 20 have one verb. That's it. There's one command. There's not three. There's not five. There's not four. The one verb has all the modifiers attached to it. If you're going to make disciples, then you're going to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? If you make disciples, you're going to reach all nations, right? If you make disciples... The Lord's going to be with you as you make those disciples. And have you been given power to do what? Make disciples. There's one verb in that whole passage there. And it's all spokes off of make disciples. Baptism is part of making disciples. So a church that doesn't have baptism, what aren't, what aren't they doing? A church that doesn't baptize people, what are they not doing? Pretty easy. There's no discipleship in that church. And if there's no discipleship, well, there's only one reason you would baptize people. And you baptize people because there's people in the church who have what? Just come to know Jesus. So if you have a church where there's nobody coming to know Jesus and they're not baptizing, then what's the problem with the church? They're not discipling. They're attending and they're not doing the mission God's called them to. Real churches grow when there's not evangelism, discipleship. Because discipleship breeds evangelism. If you're a disciple, who are you teaching? If you don't have a pupil, what are you going to do? You're going to go find one. You may not find one, you may find five. There might be six, there might be two. But this is the command. This is what, the, this is what it's saying. I don't, I don't hear missionaries come in many times and say all this. But this is what the real command is to the church. Of all nations, the task of making disciples must extend beyond the doors of a church. The word nations in the Greek is ethne, which literally means ethnic. The gospel is to go to all ethnicities. Not just people I like. I love the choir in heaven. What's a choir in heaven made up of? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. 
Our task isn't just to make disciples in the 195 countries in the world today, but the over 16,000 distinct people groups scattered across the continents. How are we going to do that? Well, we're not going to do it by keeping the gospel to ourselves. Missions conference is a time to stop and think about the Great Commission. It's a time to reflect and think about what are we doing. By the way, part of making disciples, there's a command in there, or there's a, a, a distinct commission in there of making disciples. If you're making disciples, you're going to make disciples of what? You're going to make disciples of all nations. But before we're told to that, we're told to observe all that Jesus has what? Commanded you. Observe all the teachers that I've commanded you. I want you to contemplate these things. I want you to mull over these. I want you to chew the cut on this. Because I've empowered you. Jesus is telling the disciples who were with him for three and a half years, three years of their life, they spent with Jesus Christ. They obeyed Jesus. They went to the mountain in Galilee. They, they fell down. They worshiped Jesus. Some of them are doubting. And Jesus says, hey, I am going to commission you. I'm going to give you power because I have all power. I'm going to give you the all power. I'm going to give you the commission. You, as you're going, you're going to make disciples of all nations. And that's going to result in you having to observe... What does the word observe mean there? You're going to observe all I commanded you. If you're going to do that, what are you going to do? You're going to take what has been given to you. You're going to contemplate whether or not you're going to be obedient. And you're going to make an intentional move based on your decision. Doesn't that make sense? So when you hear this, you're going to have to weigh what I'm telling you because you know you have all power. And you know the command is to reach all nations. And you know the methodology is making disciples. And you know that making disciples breeds baptism. And you know that it's done in the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because you've demonstrated that. You yourselves have baptized people. So you know all these things. So I want you, I want to, you to teach them. And I want you to observe all I've commanded you. Everything you've learned the last three years. This is the culmination point. Are you going to ultimately follow me? This is the ultimate committal. Martin Luther once said of biblical faith, while others are debating whether or not faith produced works, real faith has already begun to do the work. So we can sit back and debate whether or not this applies. Tony Evans said this, people want salvation but don't want to put the time into being strong disciples of Jesus Christ themselves. What many Christians want is to do an audit on the Christian life. You see, auditors have a great job, don't they? They don't do any of the work, but they get to inspect everybody else's. You know, what we have today is a lot of Christian auditors. A lot of Christian auditors. But where's the workers? Christ came near to them. They knew them. He told them to make him known to people. He knew what their struggles were. He knew that they must grow. He knew that they had to go. He knew that they were going to struggle. He knew discipleship was going to be hard for them. But a disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. And number three, we have to be comforted by the faithful assurance of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say at the end of the phrase or the end of verse 20? And lo, I am with you always. Do you realize he started the conversation? 
and finish the conversation with, I'm with you? Remember, he drew nigh to who? Them. He drew nigh to them. And he says, all power has been given to me and I'm giving it to you. And then he says, as you're going, I'm going to go with you. And as you're going and and you're making disciples, I'm going to be with you in the process of making disciples. And you're going to be with me in baptizing because, well, after all, if you're going to honor the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where do we see the Trinity together in the Bible? Where do we find that? The baptism of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus in the water, Holy Spirit sending like a dove, audible voice of God is present. All three are present in what act? Baptism. And baptism, we know, is the outward profession of an inward change, and it's a commission to live for Christ in a public way. Because immediately after baptism, what does Jesus do? He begins his earthly ministry. When you're baptized, you are declaring to everybody your earthly ministry is beginning. So here's the question. What ministry have you had since you got baptized? What disciples have you made? Who are they? What are their names? Where are they at? Jesus has all authority to give us the assignment he chooses. And this can feel overwhelming, but he quickly promises his presence in the last part of verse 20. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us throughout the entire discipleship process. From the time you ask somebody if you want them to, if, if they want you to teach them the Bible, to the time that they're a full disciple of Jesus Christ teaching somebody else, Jesus said, I am with you through the whole thing. Matthew began his gospel explaining that Emmanuel means what? This is why I use this at the beginning. Emmanuel means what? The last words of the book of Matthew are what? I am with you. Matthew takes it from God with us to I am with you. God with us. He is Emmanuel in the Great Commission. Jesus promises to be with us and comfort us as we're comforting others. No matter how challenging it might seem, remember that the Redeemer is with you. Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, you couldn't convince Peter of that sitting at the cross, could you? Sitting in the, te- in the courtyard? I bet you couldn't convince Peter of that then. But talk to Peter in Acts 2, what do you think? The entire commission is bookend with Jesus' sovereign power. All authority on one end and all presence on the other. And if you have his presence and you have his authority and power, who can stop you? Can Satan stop that? There's only one person that can stop that. And that's you not surrendering to the obedience of the word of God. So the real issue is not if we can, but do we have the faith that God can do it through us? That's the real issue of the Great Commission. The blanket promise of the presence of the Son, no matter where you go, no matter how far you go, to the very end of the age, he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's not a time in which Jesus Christ is not going to be present when people disciple. Think about that. Are we fully convinced of Christ's authority? Are we fully committed to following the assignment? Are we comforted by the faithful assurance that he is with you? Every time you go with the gospel, every time you strive to live out the Great Commission, every time you have an awkward spiritual conversation, every time you seek to disciple someone, Jesus is there. He'll be with you to the end of the age. 
You can count on the promise and the presence of Jesus. And we are never more closer to Jesus than we're doing what he commanded us to do. The word all. All authority. All nations. All he has commanded. And he'll be with us always. Even until the end of the age. I don't want discipleship to be a program at Faith Baptist Church because it's not a program. It's, it's an ethos. It is what we are called to do. It is part of the DNA of being a Christian. It's not one of many ministries. It is our mandate. It is what we're called to do. It's for everyone, not just pastors, not just deacons. It must start in our hearts and be fleshed out in our homes. Parents, you're called to make disciples of your children. Grandparents, you're called to make disciples of your children and your grandchildren. And while decisions for Christ are important, the true metric is this. How many people are actually disciples of Jesus Christ? Let me give you an illustration how God's math works different than ours. I'm going to kind of jump ahead here a little bit. but The group that Jesus poured his life into was very small if you really look at it. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus was great at taking big crowds and making them small which kind of makes me wonder why we're trying to get big crowds today for Jesus Christ. Remember when he started the the greatest sermon ever preached, there was a great multitude of people around him in Matthew 5, the beginning of it. By Matthew 7, who's left? Just as the the 12 disciples were left. He would take the 5,000 and scatter them. He took, when he was preaching on the Sea of Galilee, a large group, he got into a boat and he told them to go away, go home. After he taught them, Jesus was great at taking large groups and making them small. Matter of fact, even within the disciples, there was a smaller group, wasn't there? Who were they? Peter, James, and John, right? Jesus was always about taking large groups and making them small. Today, the church is about, well, we don't want to be small. We want to be, because if we're big, we can do more. Well, are we? Are we? Or we just have a migration of sheep from one fold to another. And we're acting like we're actually spiritual when we're not. Let me illustrate you how God's economy works. It took Jesus over three years to train 12 men. Right? Three years to train 12 men. How could a dozen men be expected to reach all nations. Now I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. How many people in here are saved today? Rhetorical. (laughs) How did you hear the gospel if it wasn't for those 12 guys? Wasn't a big mega church. It wasn't some fancy flattery words. All nations. Let me ask you a question this today. Would you rather, okay, this is a would you rather game, okay? I want you to take the would you rather. I'm going to deceive you a little bit, so hang on. Would you rather have a million dollars every week for a year? A million dollars every week for a year, or I give you one penny for the first week and then double it every week for a year. 
at the end of the year, option one would yield $52 million, right? Pretty easy math. Option two would yield you $22 trillion. I kind of like the second. doesn't start out well, but it, it gets momentum, doesn't it? Let's take dollars away from this equation and let's, let's substitute something different. Would it be better to disciple 10 people a year for 30 years or to disciple one person every two years, but that person in turn would also make a disciple? Which would be better? So what is the math then? Say, I don't know. Option one would yield you 300 disciples over a lifetime. Option two, 32,768 disciples from one person. 32,000 people. That's double the size of Alexandria from one person. How'd you get the gospel today? It wasn't with man's wisdom. It's with God's wisdom. It wasn't with man's theory. It's with God's facts. And it's not with man's interpretation of scripture, but what God actually says in scripture that matters. So I come back to option one. Are you going to be obedient to the word of God? Are you going to trust Jesus Christ and what his word says? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ, first off? Or even a disciple? If, that's, if you're not a disciple, then you need to get that fixed first. Number two, let me ask you this. What one thing will you do to grow in 2022? What is something you're going to intentionally do to grow in 2022? Here's a newsflash. We're never going to coast into Christ-likeness. You're not going to fall into Jesus. It doesn't work that way. If you want to be different, then it takes intentional steps to do that. And number three, let me ask you this. What's your Bible plan? What's your Bible plan for reading the Bible in 2022? You say, Pastor Joe, it is only September. We still got October, November, and December. Remember, we're talking about intentionality here. If you don't have a plan, you plan to fail. What's your plan? Start thinking now. Who are you going to disciple? Who are you going to be discipled by? These are things we've got to think about. We're not just going to fall into discipleship. It takes intentionality. So... I know I've gone a little long this morning, but I wanted to share this truth because off of this, the next several weeks, we're going to build on this foundation that we built today based on the Great Commission. We're going to look at all power. We're going to look at all nations. We're going to look at all the alls that are listed here. And I'm with you always, even until the end of the earth. By the way, how many of you think we're working towards the end of days of the church? And as you see the news and the media and you're watching all the stuff around you, I hope you don't get caught up in the drama of fear and despair. Because guess who's with you always? Even to the end of the age. What happens if this age is coming to an end? Guess who's going to be with you? Don't live in fear. Live in the truth of God's word. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus, intentionally helps others to follow him. So what does a new Christian do? They lovingly follow Jesus and intentionally help others to do the same. That's discipleship.